Hey, we're coming back this morning to this series, You Can't Close the Church. We're coming to the end of it. Uh, I've got this message today and then next week, and then we're very excited about what comes after this. But we really want to finish off this concept of what the church is really about, not just the shallow misconceptions, many of which have really been blasted apart in these recent weeks and months, but really at the heart, the biblical New Testament heart, what is the church about? I hope you enjoyed last week, our friend Rada Monicum. If for any reason you weren't with us, go back and watch it. He talked about um, living through the killing fields of the Khmer Rouge and how God not only sustained his life, but sustained the church through that and, and how Pol Pot is dead, but the church of Cambodia is alive and well. So appreciate him coming all the way to share that encouraging word with us today. I, I want to talk this morning about the architecture of church buildings. Um, because, in fact, the story of church architecture over the past 2,000 years or so, in many ways, is a reflection of the story of the church itself. Now, as we pointed out before, in the very earliest days, there were no church buildings. And in fact, many times they were meeting in secret because they were persecuted, but they basically were either in public spaces or they were in, in individual houses, wherever they could, could meet. But a couple of hundred years in, we see the very first church structures. Now, they weren't built as church structures, but we see these private homes that were converted um, into small meeting areas where they would kind of knock out a middle wall or something like that, but these are the first dedicated church buildings that we see anywhere in the world. Now, the big shift came in 312 AD, because in 312 AD, because of the Emperor Constantine, not only did Christianity become for the first time fully legal, but it actually became the preferred religion of the empire. And for the first time, we see these large structures that are built um, to be Christian churches. And those earliest buildings were patterned after Roman basilicas. Now, here's a picture of Santa Sabina, which is in Rome. This church was first built in 422 BC. And, and this was the pattern of these early large churches that were built, a basilica pattern. And so there was a narthex and there was a nave and there, and there was an atrium. But the most prominent feature was up front and center was the altar where the bread and the wine of the Eucharist would be front and center. And these were the first significant church buildings that were built to be churches. Now, another big shift came in 1054 AD. Anybody know what happened in 1054 AD? Big split happened. It's called the Great Schism, where the Western Church, what we would kind of think as the Catholic Church now, and the Eastern Church, what we would now call the Orthodox Church, they split. But as a result, we see a shift in Orthodox architecture reflecting their priorities. Now, oh, this is a picture here of the Dormition Cathedral, and this is in Vladimir, uh, Russia, and this is referred to as the mother church of the medieval Russian church. But because one of the great emphases of the Eastern church is on the transcendence of God. And so what you notice is, and if you've ever seen Orthodox churches, the most striking feature are these domed tops to it. And that was a reflection of heaven. That is the transcendence, the otherworldliness of God. And so church architecture shifted to reflect their priorities. Now, in the 1500s with the Protestant Reformation, another significant shift came in church architecture. Here is an early 
uh, Reformation chapel from Willemsburg, Germany, uh, built in 1590. Now, of course, the Reformation brought priority back again on the scripture as the sole sole authority for faith and practice. So their shift in architecture was that the pulpit, the place where the written word was expounded, that was the central place of the architecture. Now to see the pulpit in this picture, you've actually got to look up because it's not down on the floor. You see it's up on the second level. That's the pulpit up there. The goal was to make the pulpit where the preacher would be as visible and, and, as, and as able to be heard by as many people as possible because their conviction was when the church was gathered together, the proclamation of God's word was the most significant event that happened. Now, in the American church, when we talk about architecture, um, it is an amalgamation of all the faith traditions and cultures and regions that have come together. And so we see church structures that are all over the map. A recent trend, though, however, in the last 30 years in church architecture is churches that are designed to not look like churches, And that has been a significant trend. So it's designed to look like maybe a coffee shop or a pub or a theater or even a basketball arena. But churches are designed specifically so they don't look like churches so that people who come who don't have a church background feel feel more welcome in them. Now, there's whole websites that are dedicated to unusual church buildings. I won't take a lot of time on that, but it's kind of fun to look at. But, you know, actually here in Phoenix, we have more than our share of unusual or distinctive church buildings. So, for instance, just up the road, our good friends at First Christian Church, they are in one of a handful of churches that were designed by the great American architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Now, in fact, this church building, uh, the designs for it were uh, done by Frank Lloyd Wright in 1950, and it was originally intended to be a seminary. However, it never came to fruition here. However, 10 years after his death, our friends at First Christian Church went to Frank Lloyd Wright's widow and asked if they could use those plans for their church. And in 1972, it was actually built after his time. Frank Lloyd Wright designed it. Now, if you've ever been up at Tatum and Shea, you've noticed this green... (laughs) This green top pyramid, right? You, you know what that is, right? That, that is the Capstone Cathedral. That is a 4,000-seat church built by uh, Neil Frisbee in 1973. Now, it's all vacant now, but that is a distinctive church building. And then, of course, we don't want to forget the Cupcake Chapel, which belonged to Asbury Methodist Church on Indian School Road. So actually, Phoenix, we have our share of... Uh, distinctive, interesting church buildings. So I do, I do want to talk today about church architecture, but I do not want to talk about church facilities because, in fact, the New Testament has nothing to say about church facilities. In, in fact, it, it seems to me that if the Apostle Paul or others came back, they would be absolutely astounded by these church buildings. Now, I'm not saying they would be opposed to it or offended by it. They just would be astounded by it because it never entered their mind that church facilities, wonderful wonderful facilities like the one we have would be such a significant part of life. It just was not part of their reality in any way. So the New Testament doesn't have anything to say about church facilities, but it says a lot about the church building. 
And if in any way that's confusing to you at all, my hope is to clear that up by the time we're done today because God does have a building and the New Testament talks specifically about it and we are it. So if you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, uh, take them out and I want to have you open them up to 1 Peter chapter 2. So get your Bible out. So, sir, you in the bathrobe and the fuzzy slippers. I, I can see, I literally can see you. And I've been watching you all. So please get your Bible out, sir. And, and you, sir, at home in your fuzzy slippers as well. First um, Peter chapter two, um, very central passage in the building, which is us. So I'm backing up just a little bit to verse one, but follow along in your Bible. I want you to see this for yourself. So Peter writes, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, the point of these verses is clear. God has a building. God has a temple. God has a house. And it's not a physical structure that is, that is built by construction materials and human hands, but it is a human structure that is built by women and men of faith who have put their trust in the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, who have believed in him and who together are joined and fitted together into this spiritual house. Now, 1 Peter chapter 2 is actually one of three significant passages on this idea of God's building or God's house in the world. And I want to show you all three quickly this morning, because if you have these three passages, you really have nailed down what they talk about. The the other, um, the next significant passage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So I'll show it to you here. Keep keep 1 Peter open in front of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes, for we are God's co-workers, for we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field. You are God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. By the way, that that word wise builder is only used one time in the New Testament. It's the word architectone. I bet that sounds familiar to you, doesn't it? He said, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise architect. And someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. 
For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So even if you are the apostle Paul himself, no one can build anything to this church that is not founded on, defined by Jesus Christ himself. Let's continue on to the next verse. Go ahead, give me the next verse there. there. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. You together are the temple. Now, most often when I hear people talk about being the temple of the Holy Spirit, I hear them say, my body is the temple. That's that's very American uh, to say that. My body is the temple. Google it in and a lot of Christian websites come up the importance of, you know, eating healthy and staying fit because your body is the temple. Nothing wrong with that. Now, it is true there is one time in the scripture when individually it says our body is the temple. And it says, and the, the punchline is that we should abstain from every form of immorality. But most often, all the other times in the New Testament, when it talks about the body being the temple, it is we together are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But again, that's kind of a very individualistic American reading that my body is a temple when in fact the New Testament says it is this body together, joined and fitted together, that is the temple. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, let me show you one other important passage in Ephesians chapter 2 worth noting as well. Paul writes there, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. Now, the last passage we read said that Jesus Christ is a foundation. This takes it a little bit further. Jesus Christ is a cornerstone. So not only is he a foundation, but he is the central piece of the foundation. So the cornerstone was that first stone that was laid that not only anchored the entire structure, but also set the trajectory. It would join together. The two key walls would be fused to that stone. And so it would anchor it, but also would set the direction that it would go. And then this foundation is filled out by the apostles and the prophets. Now, remember, the apostles were Jesus personally appointed representatives. And so they are the ones entrusted to finish the foundation for what the church of Jesus Christ is. And so this is very important. So when we get to the book of Acts, they're devoted to the apostles teaching. Why? Because this is the outline of what the church is all about. You get all the way to Revelation chapter 21 in New Jerusalem, and there's a foundation made of 12 stones. What's inscribed on the 12 stones? The name of the 12 apostles, because they connected to the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, put the outline and the foundation for everything the church is about. So anything that is built upon that foundation has to stay within the bounds and the trajectory that comes out from Jesus and is contained in the apostles' teaching. Now let's finish it off here in the next verse. It says, in him, that is Jesus, the whole building is joined together and arises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's what Peter is writing about here in 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, the one prophesied in the Old Testament, that the stone rejected by the rulers would become the chief cornerstone coming to him rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual 
house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You and I, all of us together, coming from the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, are being built up into a holy house, a dwelling of God himself. Now, when we say that you and I together are the dwelling of God, let me tell you what we don't mean by that. We do not mean that God is contained in this house. We don't mean that God is contained in this dwelling. The the scripture makes it clear that's not possible. Solomon, King Solomon, after all, he built a dramatic house for a dwelling for the Lord. In fact, he said at the dedication when he prayed in 1 Kings chapter 8, he said, I have surely built a lofty house. He wasn't bashful about saying an impressive place for you to dwell. However, just 14 verses later, he said, will God dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I built. So is King Solomon confused. He said, I built this house for you to dwell, but who are we kidding? Heaven and the highest heavens can't contain you, let alone this house that I built. Here's the distinction that he was making. God dwells in this house, but God is not contained in the house. God dwells in the house, but he is not contained in the house. We could never build a box so big or so glorious that we could put God into a box. If we could build a box as big as the universe itself, it would, be, it would not be enough to contain the almighty God of the universe. One of the fundamental things we understand about God is that he is omnipresent. And when we say omnipresent, that means that God is everywhere present with all of his person all of the time. God is omnipresent, everywhere present with all of his person all of the time. And so all of the earth, all of the universe is not enough to contain him. However, here's what we mean when we say God's dwelling place. God's dwelling place or his house is his chosen place of manifest presence in the world where he's among his people and reveals his glory. So whenever we talk about God's house, this is what we mean. His chosen place of manifest, that means revealed presence where he is among his people and his glory is revealed in the world. Now this, God has been unveiling this concept for a long, long time. So we'll, little little audience participation here. So I want you to think it's easier than you think, okay? So don't stump yourselves. But can you think from your understanding of the Bible, when's the first time God said, I want you to build a house that I may dwell among my people? What was the first house that they built where God would dwell? What's that? The tabernacle, right. That is, that was a house, a chosen place of God's dwelling. It was called the tent of meeting. And so it, it, there was a couple of senses that this is where the people met together, but then the people met with God in the tent of meeting. Um, so in Exodus chapter 25, understand they're just a few months out from Egypt now into the wilderness. And God said, tell the children of Israel to construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. And then what follows for the next 15 chapters are very detailed instructions for, I mean, everything, how to make the curtains, how to make the altar, how to make the, you know, the, the uniforms. Is that 
right, with the uniforms for the priests. I mean, everything. It was like really super detailed. And then when you get to the very end of the book of Exodus and it's built, it says in chapter 40, it says, and so Moses finished the work. The house is built. And it says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, when we see cloud imagery throughout the Bible, cloud means it is a representation of the glory of God. And so when the cloud comes, and whether that's in heaven to come or Jesus coming on the clouds, it's a sign of glory. And so when the house was done, it says that a cloud filled it, and Moses couldn't even stand in the place because the glory of the Lord had filled the house. So while God is everywhere present with all of his person all of the time, heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. He cannot be contained. However, the cloud descended upon the house and that means that God's special manifest presence is now dwelling among his people with glory. So that was God's first house. What was his second house? What's that? It was the temple. Yes. So so after, so the, the tabernacle goes with him through the wilderness, and then it settles in Shiloh. It's ultimately destroyed, but the Ark of the Covenant is brought into Jerusalem. So then King David, he, he takes the city of Jerusalem, he fortifies it, he builds it up, he's got peace on every side, he gets his own mansion built, and then he has this thought. In, in chapter 7, he says, this doesn't seem right. He says, I'm living here in a mansion, but you know, The ark, that is the presence of the Lord, is like in a tent in the backyard. Something's backwards about this. He said, so I need to build a proper house for God to dwell among us. Good thought, Nathan, upon further reflection, prayer, gets a word from the Lord and says, actually, you're not the one to build it. Your son is going to build it for you. But he gets the plans, he raises all the money, and he gives it to Solomon to build it. That is the kind of building project I like. Here's the plan. I'll raise all the money. Here you go. Just build it. He, man, he, Solomon was set up to succeed. So 5,000 years, I'm sorry, 500 years later now from Moses, they build this temple. First Kings chapter 8, it says, when they finished the house and they offered the sacrifices and then they brought the Ark of the Covenant in, do you know what happened? Same thing. It says the cloud. Filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So again, we see God's house. And while God is everywhere present with all of his person all of the time and heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain him, the cloud has descended upon the house and God's special manifest presence is dwelling among his people with glory. A third one might be a little trickier. We get to the New Testament and a little shift because actually the temple, as it has been enlarged over the years, it's still standing, but still a shift happens. Where is God's temple now? Anybody brave enough to try that one? You're, you're jumping one ahead of me there. You're jumping one ahead. So John chapter 2. Jesus is in the temple structure. And he says this. He says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will build it back up again. They're like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But then John gives this explanatory note in verse 21. He said, but he was referring to the 
temple of his body. A shift happens when Jesus of Nazareth comes on the scene. Say the temple actually is no longer the building. The temple, that is the chosen place of God's manifest dwelling among his people upon whom his glory rests is now in Jesus of Nazareth. What do you think was happening up there on the Mount of Transfiguration? He goes up there, Jesus is transfigured and he becomes white as light. Peter, James, and John are there. And then it says, what settled upon him? A cloud overshadowed them and they fell down to the ground. Do you see the similarity? The cloud comes down. Moses cannot stand to minister because the glory has descended upon the house. In the tabernacle, the cloud comes down and the priest cannot stand because the glory is on the house. In the Mount of Transfiguration, the cloud comes upon Jesus. Peter, James, and John, they cannot stand because the presence is upon this tabernacle of his human body. So still, even though God is everywhere present with all of his person, all of the time in a special manifest way, he is revealed in his one and only son, Jesus Christ. And so the cloud came upon the tabernacle. God's presence is in the house. Um, God's glory came upon the temple because his presence is in the house. The cloud of glory came upon Jesus. God's presence is in the house. But now, after Jesus has died, been buried, three days later is resurrected, shows himself, and now it's time for him to return to heaven. The question is raised, but where will God's house be? Where will his manifest presence dwell here among his people? So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, final parting words, don't leave Jerusalem. I want you to wait here because not long from now, the spirit will come upon you. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, the spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses both here in Jerusalem and in Judea and even to the remotest part of the earth. It's going to come upon you and come upon you with power. And biblically speaking, this is an incredibly big deal. We kind of take it for granted as new covenant Christians that the Holy Spirit is within us. But up to this point, while the Holy Spirit has been active from the earliest verses of the Bible, and it has been among his people and, in, and, and dwelt in their midst. And even on special people had come upon them for specific tasks at specific times. The fact that the spirit of God would indwell us permanently with power. This is a really mind-blowing big deal. But in this new day of the spirit, God's presence is living within us. And yes, that means within every single one of us, but God's presence is in the house and the house is us joined and fitted together, anchored to Jesus on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So that's what Peter's talking about. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house, God is in the house. To be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, see I lay in Zion a choice and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, it's actually a stone of stumbling and of offense. So you also, as living stones, as Peter's been writing, he says, you who have been born again, you have been chosen of God, you who have trusted in Jesus as the cornerstone, you who are building your life upon him, as Jesus said in the parable, 
you also are being built into a spiritual house. So one last question. We've talked a lot about, so how is this house built? But let me ask the obvious question that is often overlooked. What is the house for? I mean, yes, for God to dwell among his people and manifest glory, but for what purpose? Because this is what Peter really hones in on. It's built for a holy priesthood. So that's us. We are the house, but then we are also the priesthood that is ministering within the house. And that's significant. I am not the priest of the house. You know, the the leaders are not the priests of the house. We are all a royal, holy priesthood. And it's built for us to minister up in the house. That's the first thing he says. Verse five, offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the purpose is for us in the house to minister up in the house spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. Hebrews chapter 13 says this, through him, that is Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that gives thanks to his name. Now, what kind of sacrifices do we offer up in this place? Is it the blood of bulls and goats? No, we have no need for that because there's one sacrifice that's been made once for all. That's Jesus. But there is ongoing sacrifice and that is the fruit of lips that is giving thanks and praise to God, which he so deserves. This is essential business here in the house, to offer up sacrifices of praise before God. Now, we need to remember, this is essential business because sometimes we start out and we think of like, you know, we do singing and stuff, and that's like the preliminaries. That's the warm-up, you know? In, in, in fact, you know, it, it's not too uncommon for, for people to show up right after that is done because it's just the warm-up anyway. Is not. It is essential business in the house. And I know some of you say, you know, I, I don't have the greatest, you know, voice in the world. Some of you sound a little better with face masks. I'm going to be honest. It's okay. It doesn't matter. The point is, it is essential business in the house that we offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. And that is praise and thanks to him. That is not the preliminaries. That is essential to what we do. The prayers that we pray and the songs that we sing and the words that we speak that give gratitude. Not only is it good manners, it's good theology. How could we come before a God and not have such thanksgiving? What's the house built for? To minister up in the house, spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God, and to minister out from the house. This is what I want you to know. Let's get down to verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, and for what purpose? He says, that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. This is the declaration out of the house from a royal priesthood. This is what he did for me. This is what he did for us. And I know that he would do just the same for you. He called me out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He has called me out of judgment and into his marvelous mercy. He has, he has called me out of anxiety and into his peace. He's called me out of fear and into his hope. He has called me out of death and into his wonderful eternal life. This is the declaration. This is what he did for me. This is what he has done for us. And I know if you would only let him, if you would only 
build your life upon him, he will do the same thing for you. See, that's what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1. The house is going to be you, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That is, you become the house and you will become my witnesses here, there, and everywhere. In other words, you are going to declare the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Your job now is to minister up in praise and to minister it out in an open invitation that God will do the exact same thing if they will only put their trust in him for them that he's done for us. How do we know that? Verse six, for in the scripture it says, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Whoever will only trust in him, who will, whoever will only stand upon that rock, they will never be disappointed. So here's what I want you to hear today. The church is essential business. And the essential business of the church is to declare thanksgiving to a God who's been so good to us, to declare it up, to declare the truth of God back to God and declare the truth of God out to those who need to hear it. And I don't know exactly who's listening to me right now, but I know this much for sure. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever trusts in Jesus will not be disappointed. Whoever builds their life upon the rock will not be shaken. If you will only put your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ, he will answer your cry. He will be better to you than you deserve. He will take you and he will make you a part of the people of God. He will take you out of darkness and he will bring you into his marvelous light. He will transfer you from the dominion of death into the dominion of life if you only will trust him enough to take him at his word. In fact, if you're listening to me right now, you could just say a simple prayer like this right now. Heavenly Father, I know that you love me and I also know that I have sinned. But I know that your son Jesus died to pay the price for my sins and I put my trust in him. Although there's much more for me to learn, I put my trust and my hope in him. And from this moment forward, together with the people of God, I begin building my life upon him and I will take you at your word that I will not be disappointed. Save me, forgive me, make me a part of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. And I want you to know if you prayed that prayer even just right now, in this moment, you are born again. You are a part of the people of God and you are now a part of the house and God is in the house.